had some unforeseen difficulties at home. Um, but in, in light of the fact that uh, everyone's here now, uh, let me go ahead and open us in a word of prayer. <coughs> Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do rejoice in the grace that you so freely bestow upon us. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the love that you have shown us. And we thank you that you provide your Holy Spirit that we might understand your truth and that we might understand the glory of the gospel and in understanding it, we might appreciate it. Uh, we thank you for the Apostle Paul and his work. We thank you for the way that uh, he in Ephesians has portrayed uh, the glory of your praise and we ask that as we study this book and conclude it this morning that you would equip us to do your will to your glory in Christ's name we pray amen <clears throat> so we're here in the final chapter of Ephesians and in a lot of ways, it's a real fitting capstone in terms of some of the information that uh, it conveys and also the encouragement that it provides. It's got uh, one of the more well-known passages in Scripture. It discusses the full armor of God, and we'll be spending some uh, significant amount of time on that. This, this uh, particular chapter, if we were going through it in a more... Uh, detailed and methodical way would probably be at least three Sunday school classes. So we're going to have to move through things a bit more briskly than I would uh, normally like to, and we may not have as much discussion uh, as, as uh, is uh, merited for something like this, because this, the, a lot of the material in here has a lot of devotional impact. Uh, it really does impact our lives. And so um, we'll be hitting some things in a summary fashion. There will be some discussion, but I just wanted to warn everybody up front that there's a lot to cover in this particular chapter. Um, so uh, with uh, that as an introduction, what I'll go ahead and do is uh, read through the chapter here, and then we'll uh, launch into our study. So we're... Uh, in the final chapter of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll be beginning in uh, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, 
whether he is a bondservant or is free. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So the, uh, the section here with the uh, imperatives uh, in instructing proper relations for children and parents is a continuation of the instructions that came in chapter 5. And, uh, and all of this is a, a continuation of the, the command to submit to one another. So it's within that context that all of this is presented. As, as we take a look at um, the, the first four verses here, um, and as we see Paul extending the discussion of, of submission uh, to children and parents, he's actually using some language here that's a little bit different than the kind of the mutual submission that's been discussed up to this point. And he uses the, the language of obey, which is, a, which is quite a bit stronger. But then he fleshes it out with in the Lord. So what's the significance of this notion of obedience when it comes to children and parents that really does differentiate it from the idea of mutual submission that has been discussed up to this point. And if you weren't here last week, it may be a, a little bit hard for you to grab the context. I'll fill that in just a little bit, where the, 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 
there's a, an, an, there's a, uh, a discussion of, of submitting to one another that happens in chapter five prior to the, the discussion of, of husbands and wives. And now we've moved on to, to children and parents. And this is a little bit stronger. So why would the, the mandate to obey be something that's introduced here now in the parent-child relationship? The, um, so to, 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 to kind of reiterate what uh, Landon just said for, for the, the microphone so that it gets picked up, there's a hierarchical structure, there's an authority structure that God has put into place. And part of that authority structure requires parents to be in a position where they're actually commanded to teach their children. And th there's a couple of, uh, of good points that you, you just raised there, Teresa. It's both parents here. It's, it's um, not just the father. And also there's this mandate that comes from God. And we see that mandate uh, in the way that uh, the Apostle Paul moves on to say, to, to use the language of the fifth commandment honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So uh, there's one thing that, uh, that Paul introduces in here, kind of in the middle of that uh, uh, fifth commandment language where he mentions uh, this is the first commandment with a promise. Uh, does, does anybody know what that means or has anybody thought through what that means. This is the first commandment with a promise. And there, there actually is a, um, there's some language that discusses the, the impact of obeying the Ten Commandments as a whole. 
uh, in after discussing the first and second commandments, uh, the, the language includes the blessing to thousands of generations, but it has to do with obedience to the Ten Commandments as a whole. While this is, is particularly addressing the parent-child relationship and the responsibility of children. Any other thoughts? That is, that is a, a, you actually jumped a little bit ahead of me, but that's probably good because we, we do have a lot of ground to cover. And what we're going to do now is we're going to kind of pivot over to what the confession has to say about the fifth commandment. Um, if you look at the Ten Commandments as a whole, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith proper has like a three line paragraph that addresses the law. But then when you go into the, the catechisms, there are questions that address the individual elements of the Ten Commandments. And for the Fifth Commandment, the greater catechism, the larger catechism, has 11 questions that discusses the implications. There's one of the questions that addresses uh, sort of the, the fifth commandment as a whole in terms of the entire impact that, it's, that it has when it comes to biblical guidance. And so we'll take a look at that one really quick. It's question 126, and it says, what is the general scope of the fifth commandment? And just to kind of, uh, and I'll, I'll read the answer next. The general scope of the fifth commandment is the performance of do those duties which we mutually owe in our several relations as inferiors, superiors, or equals. And just to clarify some of that, uh, that language that we don't use anymore, it's a little bit antiquated. It says, when it says, what is the general scope, uh, you can probably figure out that that means the spirit of it. What's the spirit of the fifth commandment? The, when you think of the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law. Um, while the, this idea of duties which we mutually owe in our several relations, that um, when, when the confession and even some of our other documents speak of how like the, the bodies that govern um, the, the different courts React, uh, behave, there's two ways of looking at it. Like elders can speak severally, meaning that they're severed from the rest, and so they're giving their own opinion, or they're speaking jointly, meaning it's a, it's a decision that the session has arrived at as a court, as a whole, and so there's agreement. And so while when you're speaking jointly in a decision, that's speaking for, for that particular church. But if I'm speaking severally and giving my opinion, it's not necessarily the opinion of the session as a whole. And so what this is talking about here is our, when we talk about our, our, our um, responsibilities as, uh, that we owe severally, it means as individuals, 
as an individual, as severed from everyone else, this is not a group responsibility, but as a, as a personal responsibility, we have, we, we, owe, we have duties that we owe to those who are inferiors, superiors, or equals. So why do you think that confession would have something like that that addresses so many different areas when the fifth commandment itself the fifth commandment proper says, honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. So why, why do you think the confession takes that and kind of broadens it out to not only the, um, the, those who are actually your parents, but also those who are your children as well as those who are your peers? Yes, a, a, a lot of this, again, goes back to that walk in love section that was covered in last week's uh, Sunday school where there's, there's the command to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That this, this idea of submission is tied to our submission to God, who is the Father of all. And in submitting to him, there's a series of relationships that are founded on the mutual love and respect that we're called to have for one another. That's an outgrowth of that command that, was, that we studied last week. And we don't have the time to, to go over it in its entirety. But <clears throat> there's, there's a fundamental uh, aspect to God's economy, which is this notion of submitting in love and respect. It goes back to Christ when he, when he washed the disciples' feet. There's this one thing that he said. Do you remember what he said after he washed the disciples' feet as the first thing that he said to them? He, he did end up... He, he, there, that, that, that's a kind of a follow-on to the message, but does anybody know what he said? Yeah, it's like, do you understand what, do you understand what I just did? And the, the impact of that, when you look back at how John introduces his gospel, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with, with God, and the word was God, and by him all things were created. There's nothing that's created in the universe there's nothing that's created in the universe that wasn't created by him. And he, that's who's washing your feet right now. So God, in, his, in demonstrating his love to us, demonstrates what the relationships should look like 
when, regardless of where you stand in the strata, whether you're whether within the hierarchy, he has blessed you with a position where you have oversight, or whether he's blessed you with a position where you're you're being overseen by others, or whether he's blessed you with with peer relationships. They're all to be governed by the kind of love that a being who creates the universe has the, the power, authority, and commands the respect of having created the universe, yet would be willing to wash the feet of, of those who are his disciples. So that, that's kind of baked into it. I'm, I'm going to get to your question, Teresa, don't worry. <laughs> and so when we take a look at this idea of going back to the fifth commandment, there's there's a blessing that, that God gives, which is his love, that then transforms us. And the transformative power of that blessing should have a practical outworking in our lives. And so there's another question. There's actually two questions, in, one in the shorter catechism, one in the larger catechism, that actually address Teresa's question, which is what is the reason annexed to the fifth commandment. So there's this reason that gets kind of appended at the end. It says the, the reason annexed to the fifth commandment is a promise of long life and prosperity. But then there's a parenthetical that says, as far as it shall serve for God's glory and their own good to all such as keep his commandment. So it is a commandment. It's a commandment for long life, and it's a long, it's a commandment, or it's a promise for long life and prosperity. But it's tied, just like uh, pray for anything and you'll receive it if it's in God's will. We have something of that same nature here where God promises long life and prosperity as far as it serves for his glory and for the good of those or experience their long life and prosperity and good meaning, good for their souls. So, yeah, it is, it is a conditional promise, but it gets to something that we'll be talking about as we get to the end of this chapter after we go through the full armor of God. And I'll, I'll give you kind of a foretaste of it. It's this idea that when you do something, it's not like this conditional thing where, ah, you know, I really hate obeying my parents, but you know, if I do that, I got this long life and prosperity ahead of me. That's not the way God thinks about it. It's not like you can take yourself, drag yourself through it with your, he your heels dug in and somehow expect to get something from him. Yes, Cynthia.
Yes, that's a, that's a good point uh, that, that Cynthia raised, which is there's this, there's this idea of natural consequences to things that, that God makes clear in the wisdom literature, Proverbs uh, particularly, but you also see it in the Psalms and Ecclesiastes and some other ones. There's, uh, there's some of that kind of language that you hear in Job where God has laid things out in a way where if in general you follow certain guidelines, it has certain consequences. And godly parents who love their children and care for their children in a way where the things that they command are for their own good. And they're, and they're careful about uh, how they transition that, uh, that level of oversight as the children grow so that you know you don't you don't tell your 15 year old to clean their room the same way you tell your 5 year old there's different level of dialogue and if you have a child who's living at home uh, after college there's a different dialogue that you might have but it's all the same there's still maybe some dialogue that you have to have with your children there's there's this way that God works through the instructions of the parents to the children that is for their good. It's, it's, it helps them to make wise decisions themselves. And it helps them ultimately to have a life that has better outcomes than if you make foolish decisions. Yeah, it's good. <clears throat> so we're kind of, we're gonna kind of jump over things a bit briskly here. There's a, there's a very similar sort of of uh, order that God has set up between um, those who are in authority and those who are under that authority that he talks about with, with masters and servants or masters and slaves. But it has, it has a lot of the same guidelines, a lot of the same principles that are in force that you see with... Uh, parents and children, although again, the authority structure is different because the, the authority structure between parents and children actually has a, uh, there's, there's, there's actually a creation order aspect to it that God has put in place where our children and their relationship to us will be different than our relationship to anybody else in the world. And the family is one of the institutions, I don't know if we've covered it yet, I think, yes, I think we did, in the, in the Malachi series where um, when God is, is bringing the, um, uh, I always want to call them attestations, losing the word right now. Yeah, it's an indictment. There's another name for it. But it, it, they're indictments, essentially, when God is, in, is indicting Israel for their uh, disobedience to him. One of the problems that they have is with, with intermarriage with other nations and raising children who are, uh, who are worshiping other gods. And one of the things that, that in one of the questions, uh, 
that God raises, he, he raises, you know, what's his intention? And he, he asks a question about what, what's his intention in the family? And the answer is godly offspring. Godly offspring. That's how God works normally through his creation order. It doesn't mean that's the only way he can work, but it's an expectation that godly parents will love their children enough to, to raise them to love the Lord. going to jump ahead here. Uh, this next section, the whole armor of, of God, beginning in verse 10, if you take a look at verse 10 uh, through verse 12, John MacArthur actually spoke a 45-minute sermon on these three verses. We're not going to spend that much time on it, but we, but we will talk about the, the, the adversarial relationship that Satan has with the, the children of God. And so when we look at this section over here and we're encouraged to put on the whole armor of God, uh, what is the main focus that we see in these three verses that's sort of like the impetus behind needing the full armor of God? So, yes, so so we need to have we need to have the what's described as the full armor of God here to act wisely, to live a wise life, to, to live uh, a life in accordance uh, to God's will. Yes. Any other thoughts? Uh, yes. Cynthia. Yes, the, the enemy is is not one that you generally uh, have a, you may not have a, a, an awareness that he's operating when he's operating. You don't see it. And yet the, these, the forces uh, are, uh, that were arrayed against, he uses some pretty powerful language here. He says, you know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. So the, the forces are pretty formidable. And yet, he has to point out that it's not against flesh and blood, because what you see around you is flesh and blood. Mike, you had uh, raised your hand.
Yeah. Yes. Very good. The, the, we, we have Satan portrayed, the devil's portrayed as a roaring lion, and he's, he's out for us. And there's, a, there's an illustration that, that Christ used when he was, uh, he was originally confronted by some religious leaders because he wasn't going through the, the, the full ceremonial washing that, uh, that the Pharisees had prescribed before eating a meal. And, uh, and in, in his response, he had this, uh, this sort of parable that he told. Uh, it, it's in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 to 45. It's, it's relatively short. But what he says in this parable is, uh, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will, be, will it be with this evil generation. Now, Christ was not speaking that to believers. He's speaking that to unbelievers. But he is speaking it to those who seek to have righteousness in their own strength, who think that by fastidiously observing these rules and regulations that they've set up, that somehow that deals with problems that go way, way down to the heart level. And what, what Christ points out here is that you may deal with one battle, but there's another one coming, and another one, and another one. And as these battles occur, your adversaries, as we're reading here in Ephesians chapter 6, it's principalities and powers and forces of darkness. And there was an illustration. Um, my daughter Becky and I, we've been kind of going back and forth um, uh, we, had listened, we had listened to a podcast by Tim Keller, and in, in, the, in this podcast, Keller had spoken about um, the dialogue between God and Cain, just before Cain kills Abel. And there's the language that, that sin is crouching, kind of like crouching at your door. And the, the language in there in the original Hebrew has this, this sense of like a lion that is tense and ready to pounce. Well, um, Becky sent me a, uh, a link to a, a, a video that was on Reddit, and it had this uh, it had this antelope that had gone down to the watering hole, and and a, and a crocodile had grabbed it by the leg. And so you see this ferocious battle for life and death, only for one of them, uh, and. Somehow, the antelope pulls its leg out of the jaws, and it's really, it's an interesting battle to watch because you can see that the, the, uh, the crocodile is fighting for his next meal, the antelope is fighting for his life, and the antelope succeeds, pulls his leg out of the, the alligator, or the crocodile's mouth, gets up on the shore, starts shaking himself off, and then the camera pans over to a leopard 
that's behind the bush. <laughs> and uh, sad to say, the antelope did not evade the second predator. He, he exchanged his place on the crocodile's menu for a place on the leopard's menu. But that's kind of the way Satan comes at us, you know? He's relentless. He's not going to give up after you have one success. As a matter of fact, when your guard is down after you've had a success, that's when you can be most vulnerable at times. Because when you're going through that fight for your life, you're crying out to God. You know that you need his strength to overcome. And at the end of this chapter, you're, you're going to see with the full armor of God, the final element that we speak of is prayer, the importance of it. Why? Because our adversary is always there, and we always need to have him protecting us. Yeah, Teresa. So all of this armor requires our prayer. It's not like something that you can put on yourself and now you're ready to withstand things. All of this stuff is outside of ourselves. And so we'll, uh, with that as kind of an introduction to the, the full armor of God, um, we'll start off with the, the belt of truth. Think, I think in the original languages, it actually uses something like uh, girding your loins or something like that. It's actually not, it actually doesn't speak of a physical belt, but of how you would take and wrap yourself with something that would keep uh, your, your garment from causing you to trip. And uh, with the belt of truth, what's the importance of the belt of truth? Or girding our loins with truth. So we, I, I think it does. The, the idea that like there's there's a reality out there, and that that reality includes stuff that we know about. But we, as we just, as Cynthia just brought up, it's, it also involves these things that you can't see. And we need to have a truth. We need to have the map that tells us what's really out there, so that we can make a, a an accurate assessment when we're trying to live. Good. Good. Any, anything else about truth? Jay. Uh, just to, to play on that, 
Yep, that's a, that's a good point. The, uh, there are soldiers everywhere, and the analogy that he's using here uh, has, has, a, has the purpose of pointing to these soldiers who are everywhere, but also pointing to the fact that like, this is a war. This is a war that you're in. Uh, Tim, you, I saw your hand. Yes. The, yeah. 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 The, yeah. Yeah. So, so to kind of summarize what Tim said, there's the there's the truth of the gospel, and this is actually a bookend to to what uh, Paul mentioned in Ephesians chapter one where he says in verse 13, to him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. There's this idea that this truth, that there's a specific truth that has real impact on, on how you live and how the, the rest of your battle goes. Yes, Scott. That's a, that's a good point that, that Scott raised, that, that our adversary knows the truth better than we do, and he knows how to manipulate it. It started right from the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? And, and he brought scripture up when, with, with Christ about how, you know, throw yourself down. Uh, the, your father will protect you. So he's... Uh, he, he knows it well. He just doesn't like it. He's a better theologian than any of us will be. He just doesn't like it. And Cynthia, I saw your hand before. It keeps us so that we're able to engage in the battle. Yes, yes. Belt does that, and, and Cindy.
Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a, a very important point about the truth. The, the truth is foundational, and we need to have the truth from God's word because we have, we have things even within ourselves. You know, there's the, um, there's the, 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 our three adversaries are, you know, our own sin, the world, and the devil. Where things are coming at us from all different angles and things that are proclaimed as truth from the world, we have to measure them up against God's word. Um, and, and so because the way that the adversary comes at us is in, it's relentless, it's multi-phased, it's when you least expect it, you need to have the truth because he'll come, he'll come at it through you, through your own experience, things that you think are okay because, well, you feel it. So it must be okay. Well, God's word, uh, and the sword of the spirit, which is God's word, uh, is, it's living and active. And that will discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we need to have that kind of jumping ahead to, um, to the sword of the spirit. So if we take a look at uh, the breastplate of righteousness quickly here, I have to be a little more quick than I was on the belt of truth. Um, the, the breastplate of righteousness, so what is he talking about here? Yes, there's, so there's, the, there's that aspect of the, the, the righteousness that God imputes to us through Christ, and we need that. We need that. Any other thoughts? About, about the breastplate of righteousness. Yep. Yeah. Cynthia. Yeah. Yeah. I'm comfortable with waiting. So this, it is the righteousness from Christ. And some of the other commentaries also speak of 
not just you know what we would call justification, but they also talk about sanctification, that sanctification also plays a role here in, in our battle, that um, God is progressively doing a work in us of, through his free grace, where he is conforming us to Christ as well. Now, I'm, I'm going to jump through a couple more of these to get to my final point, which is the kind of like the, his closing here. So uh, when it comes to the shoes of readiness that come from the gospel of peace, again, there's kind of a thread here that all of these are woven together with the gospel, yet he's, he's broken them out this way with the shoes making us sure-footed, recognizing that the gospel that's transformative in our lives has a twofold impact to us. And the, the gospel primer really hammers this home. This idea of, of, the, of Christ's blood cleansing us from sin's guilt for eternity, we're justified, but it also cleanses us of, of sin's power. The power of sin no longer rules us we, we no longer have a heart that's in bondage. Uh, so it's strength for today in addition to that hope that we have for tomorrow and eternity. And then the shield of faith, this one is one of my favorites uh, when I think of it because I, I always think of like the Lord of the Rings when like somebody throws up a shield and you see like half a dozen arrows stuck in it in one of those battle scenes where it's your faith that's going to protect you. Well, how does your faith protect you? Because ultimately, we're protected by God's grace. You know, how is it that, you know, those, those flaming arrows don't reach you when you have faith? This is a, this is a question that's um, that's going to lead us into the final section here. Yeah, Rob. That is, that is a, a, a strong, a very strong point. Yeah. <laughs> you kind of cut, you cut to the chase in one of my answers. I, I, you got ahead of me, but that, that's, uh, that's, that's the point. Yep. Exactly. You start to doubt. Start to doubt. Good. Tim? Yep, so the, the role that your faith has to play in your life has to dominate the role that your emotions play in the things that you think. Ronnie?
God's Holy Spirit is there. God's Holy Spirit is there. Yeah, that's a good point. God's Holy Spirit is there to bring to mind the things that we know. And uh, Spurgeon has this great quote about faith. He says, uh, we shall bring our Lord most glory if we get from him much grace. If I have much faith so I can take God at his word, I shall greatly honor my Lord and King. This idea that if you really believe this stuff, it's like, this is what Paul is telling us here. Do you believe it? This is who you are. Believe who you are. Live who you are. That when, when you have those doubts, when you have those things that cause you to question, be who you are. Trust, trust the one who created everything from nothing. As you look through that, that great uh, passage in Hebrews on the, the Faith Hall of Fame, it's preceded by, by faith we believe that God created everything from nothing. From nothing. That, that means like there's nothing. Think about that. It's, it's not like there's this stuff out there and he said, oh, I think I'll do this and that. It's like it wasn't there. He had to invent it all. Matter and energy, space and time, like that stuff just, it didn't exist. It's just, it's mind-blowing to take it down to that level. Uh, I'm going to try to close here. I was going to ask Matthew if I could teach three classes on this, but I didn't get the idea until yesterday. Um, <laughs> In, 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 his, in his final greeting, we get a sense of how important community is and how community factors into the life of the church where Paul is sending uh, his, the beloved brother, Tychicus, uh, to not only um, tell everything, about what's going on, but also to encourage the hearts of those who are going to hear this letter. And so we get this sense of, of community that reminds us that we have three adversaries. We have our own sin, we have the world, the world and its system, we have Satan. The world and its system can be pretty adversarial it can be tough. It can be a rough go. We spend a lot of our time. If you're in the workplace, you spend a lot of your time there. It can wear you down. It's important to have the community of faith there to build you back up. It's important, and we see the, the importance that Paul is putting on this with his willingness to... Th this is one of four letters that kind of went out at a similar time frame to encourage the believers in various churches. It's important, important to hear from one another, important to spend time with one another. But then we have this final close here, where it says, peace to the brothers and love and faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. I don't know if I, I in my periphery I saw a movement, but I couldn't tell if a hand was going up.
I put my head down here. Okay, just wanted to make sure. Uh, <coughs> and it comes to kind of like the final, the final sort of conclusion and application that we can have from all of this. And wrapping everything up, you know, when we started Ephesians, uh, there's th there was this one phrase to the praise of his glorious grace. God is interested in his own glory. And then he lays out, um, Paul lays out uh, all sorts of uh, encouragement from, from the theological underpinnings of the gospel and its implications for us, where uh, he ends up closing with this almost doxological statement at the end of Ephesians chapter 3 where he says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And that, that was his close before he then launches into sort of the practical side of his theology, the things that he uh, encourages us to do as a result of the, the great truths that we know. Now as we're taking a look at this at the end, as we're, as we're, we're considering the implications on, this, on our lives for this, this, get, this gets back to the point that, uh, that Rob raised about the arrows being doubts. We, sometimes we don't realize just how heavily we allow those doubts to weigh on us and what those doubts that we have really say about what we believe. If, you, if you're discouraged and you start to doubt, what are the things that happen? There's a couple of courses of action that some people have. Like they'll, they'll just give up and they'll say, well, you know, We'll, we'll use it uh, kind of a, a, a an example that's safe for people in this in this audience here, which is uh, if a child who refuses to clean his room, it's like I got more things to do in life than this horrible thing that my parents have asked me to do. They're oppressive anyway. My father loses his temper. Uh, do I really need to? I mean, do I really need to follow somebody like that? Whether you're taking a course of action like that, or we may have some that were more severe, it may involve a reprobate lifestyle with alcohol abuse and uh, you know, promiscuous lifestyle, but all the things that you may engage in, uh, where you take a look at this and you're expecting to get something from that that you're not getting from God. You're going to get this thing that's going to be better than the relationship that you get with God. Or maybe you fail. Maybe you struggle. Maybe you do something that you don't want to do. You really, really feel bad about it. But then you get so down that you don't feel like doing anything else. You know, there's this great quote. <clears throat> I think that Matthew used it in one of his sermons where John Bright, who was a, one of the, the part of the liberal faction back during... Benjamin Disraeli's time, uh, he, he said this of Benjamin Disraeli, he's a self-made man who worships his creator. And we, kinda, we can kind of snicker at that, but 
we don't realize that we're doing that ourselves when we get so down from our sin that we don't get up again and try to move forward in God's strength. God encourages us with the, with the full armor of God, with this encouragement that, that the evil one is one to be overcome. But are you your own savior? Do you view your, yourself as your own savior so that when you sin, you let yourself down and then you can't get over it? God does want us to have serious repentance when we come before him, and that's why we have a confession of sin uh, every week. But he also wants us to rejoice in the gospel, and that final hymn is, is usually a hymn that's meant to lift up our spirits as we look to the power of the cross we look to the glory of the one who died for us. We experience, we experience the, the uplifting um, uh, exhilaration, really, that, that's characterized as the righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, knowing that we don't have to be our own Savior. We don't have to be. Christ was. He's the one who fulfilled everything. He's the one who has done it all for, for us. And just to have that reminder as we close here, as we say, grace be with you, the grace of God, the grace that he has for us is grace to look back on this truth and to believe it. And that's what God wants us to do after having, having seen all this, to take it with us, that, that his word is grace for our lives to strengthen our faith and encourage and encourage us in our walk with him. So I've already kept us a little bit late. I apologize again for getting a late start. And I'll go ahead now and close us in a word of prayer. 